This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. We're here on Saturdays. This time we talk about the disease of addiction. It's sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, the whole shooting match. And uh, we have more about the the fine, fine work they do. Uh, But for those of you who might not be familiar with the program, we rely upon experts in the field to come in to this show and uh, arm the audience with as much information as is humanly possible so that you can get your head around this disease, which is clearly ravaging the country right now. Substance abuse is a gigantic, deadly problem and getting larger, tragically. Uh, Recovery Radio is dedicated to uh, giving you answers to questions about this disease or about treatment you're receiving. Uh, To that end, as I said, experts all the time, clinicians, writers, people who really know the disease of addiction and can speak about it authoritatively. Sprinkled throughout that liberally, we take the opportunity to bring people who have literally been there, done that, folks who have walked more than a mile in shoes surrounded by this disease. They come in to tell you that struggle, that story, and to leave you with uh, their sobriety. They're all in uh, at some stage of, uh, of sober living. And the, the thing that needs to be reinforced over and over again about the disease of addiction is that in spite of its often difficulties, intractability in some cases, its, its death rates, people get sober. People get help. 20, 30 million people right now are living in long-term successful recovery. So we seek out these voices in recovery. They tell you their story, and we hope it can enlighten the issue for you. To that end, we welcome to Recovery Radio today yet another voice in recovery, and that is Stephanie Sukas. I hope I got that right. Did I get that right, Stephanie? That is correct. I know, and you wanted to say hello. So step a little closer to that microphone, move in, and say hi to everybody. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me today. So, uh, you know, that's you know, you're here, and you know why you're here for, for just that purpose. It's it's okay. an incredibly powerful story that you have, and I know you've told it to many, many people, and and we'll explore a couple of the reasons later on about why you think it's important to share your story. But uh, okay. thanks for joining us, and uh, tell us who you are, who are you, where are you from, and uh, we'll go from there. All right. So my name is Stephanie Sugas again. I am from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am 26, and I live in long-term recovery now. I've spent a long time in my life for the past couple years fighting this disease, and it's taken me to many lows, but now I can say it's taken me to many highs in my life, and I'm thankful that it happened in some ways. Well, let's let's flesh a lot of that out. Tell us about your family, uh, siblings, mom, dad. What was that like? So... Um, I was born May 17th, 1992. Um, I have a mom, dad, and a brother. Um, I also have later on in life joined in my family a stepdad and a stepbrother. Um, We're a great family, and my parents, all three of them, I would say, including my stepdad, they're very wonderful people, and honestly, I love them so much, as much as they don't realize that sometimes, not because they are not of high IQ, but because of how I treated them. I was very brutal in my um, teenage years and in my early 20s. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You know, so, so it sounds like, you, you know, you have the all-American uh, uh, kind of childhood, uh, no trauma associated with, with any of your upbringing. Is that right? I wouldn't say so, no. Yeah. No, yeah. my parents were 
awesome. They were great parents. But um, I always noticed a darkness in me, and so did my parents as well. I was attracted to things, I guess I would say, that are dark. I, I was very attuned with pain um, starting at an early age. And around nine, um, I was diagnosed with anxiety among depression and, and, you know, other things that I may not mention. And as life went on, you know, I noticed just thinking patterns that I had and a darkness. Yeah, like at nine mentioned. years of age, they diagnose you as having the, yeah. those kinds of problems. What, tell me about it. What, what is a nine-year-old who has dark thoughts and think about? Yeah, I mean, what, do you, what, what were the thoughts? My most interesting thought that I still remember, I remember laying in my father's bed and I would hold on to him at night. Um, I would latch on to him because of my really severe separation anxiety. I could not be separated from my parents without really losing it. So I would think about the world and if there was no creatures on it, no animals, nothing, but maybe trees and, you know, that kind of stuff. But there would be no time. There would we created time, and this really left me empty, and I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, as a ni- as a nine year old. How about you? You had siblings. I'm sorry for. I yeah, no, that's okay. I have um, two brothers. I would say and older. They're both older. Yeah. Than me, yeah. W- did any of the, the, those the, those guys have anxiety issues? No, they both my brothers. You know, my one brother has ADHD as well, um, but he. Uh, but nothing like the, like yeah, the dark thoughts. Yeah, nothing like me. They experimented, but they did not go down the yeah. path I did. So mom and dad see that they've got this, this little nine-year-old who's way too anxious and way too frightened um, and get you to some professional help. Did they diagnose you? What did they diagnose you with specifically? Was it well, anxiety? depression and anxiety yeah. mainly. I have been seeing counseling for a long time due to um, separation of my parents, but mostly my problems, sleeping, going to school, being anxious and shy. Yeah. Um, I was just very separation anxiety prone, like yeah. very badly. Were you were you medicated as a child? I was. I was put on an SSRI at nine. What is an SSRI? Um, it is like Prozac or Paxil. It's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It helps with um, the chemicals in your brain that create a happy and good feeling to be more commonly put into your receptors. Yeah. So you were at an early, very early age, introduced to drugs. In a therapeutic setting to begin with, but yeah. it certainly sets the stage for what follows. So, did that help you manage your anxiety as a youngster? I didn't like being on a medication. It. My parents had sent me to a lot of counseling, and they were doing what was right in their mind. But to me, it, it kind of came with the idea that there was something at the core very wrong with me. And that really scared me. Um, But medicine taking was very common by both of my parents, not so much my stepdad. So I thought if you have something wrong with you, you take a medicine for everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, This almost perfectly kind of sets the stage for as you get a little bit older uh, and you start experimenting as most young people, many young people do. um, Tell us about that. So I started experimenting, um, you know, with alcohol probably around 13 years old. What I remember most, my you know biggest memory of that is the first time I drank alcohol with my friends. I had a sleepover party at my house. We poured um, liquor into our Sprite cans, and I felt after drinking it that just everything lined up perfectly in my brain where I felt good. I felt okay. I felt confident even, and I felt like just a normal human being for once. My anxiety was gone, and that was the moment where I realized, like, I had arrived, and it was going to keep going from that point. I would fight to find that feeling. Uh, Stephanie, I don't mean to be um, 
insensitive about this, but is that an actual feeling you remember, remember that, that you could drink? Like a lot of 13-year-old kids yeah. did it, a lot of sleepovers. But for you, you remember, remember this immediate sense of, wow, I'm okay. I'm okay. Right from that first drink. It wasn't maybe from the first sip, but a few sips in, once I started feeling that kind of buzzed, lightheaded feeling. But even from the sip of the drink, I felt that excitement of doing something bad. Yeah, yeah. And that was, again, that attraction to darkness. That's about your 13 years old. And yeah. Your, your, yeah. your peers are certainly right there with you. They're all... They didn't seem as amazed by this. They seem more amazed by the badness of the act. Me, more so the... I have like a sense of like an existential crisis a lot in my early life, and I think that put me right where I wanted to be. Yeah, you know, it was more it was more like medicine for you Relief. than it was than it was for your for your friends. So, where do you go at thirteen? You start drinking. How quickly are you drinking seriously? So, by the age of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, that's when things start accelerating. You know. More and more, I am trying to find drinks. I remember, you know, sleeping at my parents' house at night. I would lock myself in my room, and I would have stolen a couple of days before, maybe that same day, a bottle of liquor from the, you know, um, refrigerator or the closet. I would find bottles, and I would switch them with water. I was very innocent and slash stupid, but, um, you know, I would eventually be caught. But I didn't care, and that was a sign that really kind of I should have noticed that if I didn't care to get caught, what am I doing? Yeah. W- was there any other behavior that you were doing that was self-destructive? I mean, you weren't cutting yourself or anything I, like that? Laughingly enough, it's not funny subject, but I find my memory is I wanted to burn myself because often I wanted to fit in, and I heard a friend's doing it. I burnt myself. I hated it so much I never touched it again. Yeah, really? Okay. All yeah. right. So anyway, it's a, it's a pattern. Substances. Uh, I didn't uh, find it relieving, just like that calmness in my brain, that was relief. Yeah. But burning myself with more pain, I think that was a oh, sign of something else. Well, you caught a break there. Yeah. Um, characterize your behavior with the drinking, the acceleration of it, the the abuse of it. To, to your friends around you were any of those people going as hard as you were early on no they were shocked um i had really a lot of trouble fitting in in my mind more than it probably was reality i projected that nobody wanted to be my friend nobody wanted to talk to me well this might be due to my really exaggerated wanting to fit in and also my outrageous drinking behavior at parties i broke things i yelled at people i was just terrible. Were your friends trying to help you or did they start to move away? Just First help, then move away. Some yeah. of them immediately move away. When you see somebody like that, I might have had the same reaction myself. Right. You were just you were just somebody you, you, these people want to go out and have a good time. You were out having a bit a terrible time. Funny enough, that turned around 18 I met my first love, my first boyfriend and I for once had purpose and that was a huge sign that Without somebody else giving me purpose, I wasn't okay. But anyway, that was the time where I became the mother at the parties. I still drank a lot, but I could handle myself at that point, which was funny when you get so sophisticated in drinking that you can handle yourself but drink more than everyone else. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, this is a, a terrific look at the path many many people uh, take on this road to substance abuse. Our guest, Stephanie Sukas. Stephanie joins us to tell us about her struggles with substance abuse and uh, her now year of sobriety. Um, uh, so, so, Stephanie, uh, you fluctuate up and down with your ability to handle 
uh, alcohol anyway in your in your teen years your first boyfriend has some kind of a stabilizing effect on you what happens then to send things spiraling even downward yes this is and hello again everybody but this is definitely where things start to really accelerate um i end up dating this gentleman uh for about three years three and a half and he has a huge effect on me um I would say I'm showing signs that I was a lot like a chameleon. You like this sport. You like this music. I will like it, too. I will like everything you like. It was very codependent. But he made me feel safe because I wasn't alone, finally. Well, did, it, did it slow down your, uh, your alcohol? I began smoking marijuana a lot um, during that period. And that really, you know had a calming effect, but not as quite destructive at that period of time. I really kept it together for the most part. I was functioning. Um, I did have a prescription to benzos um, after facing some PTSD, which I will not get into that situation, but um, that definitely a handful of benzos with some marijuana and some occasional drinking, that can definitely get you a little tipsy. That's a, uh, it's quite a cocktail. The, 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 uh the benzodiazepines, again, part of this long protocol dealing with you from age nine and your emotions and, and, and yeah. all that? Yeah. Well, an event occurred, and I had... Well, you don't need to go into yeah, the specifics of that if you don't want to. No, I will not, but I will say after that event, I had nightmares. I would, you know, jump at noises. I commonly explain the story over and over again of what happened. I was definitely facing some traumatic, you know, symptoms. So those benzos were prescribed to me, and I was very excited to when, say the least. When you were being prescribed these the mood drugs, these psychotropic drugs, w- was anybody explaining to you that you ought not to mix them with alcohol or marijuana? It said it straight on the bottle. Yeah, but you, yeah. The, the, you, that didn't um, stop you for a little bit. My mom right? would say that to me. You know, it says not to drink with that. It says no herbal substances. And I would say, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, tell me about when when the spiral really starts to get deadly. Did, did you what did you move? Did you what did you move towards? So after my boyfriend and I broke up, we I went into a very you know traumatic spiral out of control. I was in college at that period of time, really directionless, aimless, and I started partying a lot. But what I also did is had to change of jobs. I started working in the restaurant industry, which was where the major downfall of my life began. I met uh, another gentleman and then again a different one and he had a hobby and it was doing something I hadn't quite seen before. Um, you know, doing this type of drug, smoking it off a tinfoil was very weird but alluring to me in a way. I don't know why. Crack cocaine? No, it was Oxycontin, um, smoking it with straw tinfoil lighter. Yeah, yeah. So so you're 18 at that point, and, and he introduces you to that. What was your reaction to uh, smoking Oxy? Well, it was funny. He wanted to share it with us so bad, but what I found is no addict really wants to share unless they want to bring you down with you. Yeah, well, misery loves company. Yeah, How was so your, well, did you? My experience was the moment I smoked it, it wasn't a few sips later. It was that moment, but... 30 seconds later, maybe less than that, I was arriving. <laughs> and I had found something that fixed everything even more. Mm. It was quick, it was painless, and m- everything was gone. Yeah, at every stage in your young life when you're introduced to a new drug, whether it's whether it's uh, by prescription or, or on the street and illicit, 
you seem to be your reaction to it seems to be the same oh this is what i'm looking for yeah. oh this is the best thing so you're hell bent on getting to the conclusion of this process which is i'm guessing probably did you get to heroin i did so um in a matter of probably three months uh, my boyfriend and i his dad had died um so he had ten thousand dollars from his state uh, oxycontin cost a dollar a milligram usually so we spent ten thousand dollars in three months on Oxycontin alone. We were poor. We had no money. We lost their jobs due to no call, no shows, or just he stole from the company. So so uh, that's an extraordinary story. $10,000 yeah. in, in a handful of months. Uh, you're, you're 18. You're in college. What's going on in your, your family? Are they aware that you're on this spiral? They are. Um, after a vacation where things went bad on my end, I was sick the whole time in bed from withdrawal. My parents both kicked me out of their houses. They said, you get rid of the job, you get rid of the guy, you can come back. But they didn't really know how things had gotten that bad. One day they arrived at my boyfriend's house where I was living, and they tried to do an intervention. And I said, heck no, I'm staying. And I could not imagine what it would be like without this drug. So they were not oblivious to this. In fact, they looked like they were actively tr trying to stop yeah. stop this thing. Uh, what was happening in college? Had you dropped out at that point? Yes, I did. Um, I was in and out for a couple years, but at that point, I think I was still like in classes, but I wasn't going, obviously. The intervention, was it the first thing that got you to, into treatment, or was there, was there an, an event after that? Uh, I said no to them. I actually kept using for a couple months, and then... Um, when we lost our jobs, when we ran out of that money, that's when heroin came into the picture. Uh, my boyfriend, one night, I asked him to shoot me up in the bathroom. I remember it. He shot me up for the first time. I fell out for probably nine hours. I don't remember anything. And I woke up with him above my head. Hey, explain. We have a couple of seconds before we take the break. But you just said something interesting. You said when the money ran out and things looked darkest for you and this guy and your parents had said, that's it, get out if you won't get help. You guys turn to heroin? Why does uh, that why does that sound like a solution to your problem? Do you remember thinking Well, there was no other way of looking at things. We were very heavily addicted to opiates. Once you're addicted after even two weeks, you will get tremendously ill at after four to six hours, maybe ten hours if you're lucky, of not using. You will have the shakes, you will be throwing up, you will have diarrhea, you will be mentally depressed and anxious. It will be terrible experience. I've heard, and I concur, that opiate withdrawal is the worst type of withdrawal to go through. So in your context, in your frame of mind, heroin makes perfect sense to avoid the nightmare of not having heroin. And to avoid facing my problems, to avoid facing my life, to avoid getting clean, to avoid everything. Yeah. Before we return to our guest uh, to hear the rest of her story, I want to remind you that Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. I could go on at length about how world-class they are. Their reputation precedes them. They are leaders in this field. They've helped lots of people. They're sponsoring this program. Certainly to remind you of that, they're proud of their record. But that's not why they sponsor this program, and I mean that sincerely. This program is about information that might save people's lives. That's the mandate we have. And when I give you Retreat's phone number, it's not because we're telling you for one single moment they're the only people in the world that can help you. They've helped lots of people, but they're not the only w people that can help you. They are, though, among the best people you could call in a crunch. And when this disease hits, 
Believe me, people don't know where to turn. So I'm going to give you their phone number. And I say this every week, and I mean it sincerely. I hope you never have to use this phone number. But it could, it could save somebody's life. 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Whatever your questions are, whatever your circumstances may be, they'll answer the questions for you. And if they can help you, they'd be glad to. 855-859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Stephanie Sukas has been talking with us about her battles with substance abuse. Stephanie's a 26-year-old uh, young lady who has struggled mightily, uh, going way back to uh, her early childhood when she's diagnosed with severe anxiety issues sufficient to be medicated by uh, family physicians, and that begins her on a path of abusing all kinds of drugs up to and including uh, heroin in her um, late teens. So, so Stephanie... Um, what got you finally to a treatment facility? Uh, well, first I do want to say, as you mentioned, retreat, they're an awesome place, and they're actually the first I went to. But before getting into that, um, we left off where I had been um, shot up by my boyfriend for the first time. After that, things um, go down a bad path very quickly. Um, in a matter of six months, I am very ill. Um, we live in an apartment on Manor in Old Dorward. It's rat-infested. It's disgusting. We are on the verge of being evicted at any moment. We have a 40-year-old crack addict living on our couch, and it was my boyfriend's cellmate in jail. Um, I had really lost control of who I was, what I was, what I stood for, and I was at my end. Yeah. And you decide, this, this, this is not right. I can't do this anymore. Well, it was really, I was working a... A job. I worked 14-hour shifts most weekends to support three people's habits. One day I go into work and my boss yells at me and I've really just, you know, had many reasons to be yelled at. My clothes were dirty. I was wearing the inappropriate clothing to work, you know, sweatpants and a serving job. And so I yell back at him. I swear at him like I probably do to everyone. And I walk out on a seven-table section and I go home with the money I'm owed. That is 50 bucks. For a heroin act, that will be gone in 60 seconds or less. So we have that money spent. It's up my veins. Um, and basically, after that, I realized we are screwed. Nobody has a job. Nobody has any income. We're about to be evicted. We're about to have no electricity. So my dealer calls me. He says, uh, Stephanie, I'll give you some free stuff if you come out here. So I go out there, and he gets in my car, and he pulls down his pants. I... Could not go through with it. I will say that. Did I want the drugs? For sure. But did I want to lose every amount of respect I had for myself that was left? No. But many people do. Mm. And that's what's scary. For many people I know, it's a true story to them that they go through with it. Fortunately for me, that was the moment where I went home. I called my mom and I said, it's time. Yeah. Uh, and you go into a, a residential facility and you're detoxed, correct? Yeah, I go to the retreat, actually. Yeah. What's um, now, again, avoiding dope sick sickness is paramount in the minds of a heroin addict. Uh, you must have been terrified at the prospect of going into a, a treatment facility. What was in your mind at that point? I was scared to death. I thought it would be very uncomfortable. I did not know who was going to take care of me, how anything. I packed two pairs of pants and two shirts and a sweatshirt for it. I was going to be there for 30 days, but I planned skipping out in six days. 
So you, you, you go there out of desperation at the circumstances you're in now rather than I'm going to go get help. This is just a safe, let me go here for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So you go through detox and how long did it take you to detox that first time? Um, it was a two-week process until yeah. um, the taper was over, a little over that. Um, they, was it awful? Was it as awful as you'd feared it would no, be? No, they give you meds called comfort meds mm-hmm. to help you if you're able to prescribe by the doctor. Um, and, you know, also use of Suboxone most commonly. Mm-hmm. It's a very comfortable detox. So when you're, so when now you're at a detox and you're in a treatment facility, you're where you're supposed to be. What do you, th- are you thinking, gee, maybe I ought to start trying to get sober? Or are you thinking, how can I get high again? At first, I wanted to escape. Um, you know, I always, you know, think back to that time. And I was really crazy after maybe seven years of abusing drugs. When a person gets off of drugs, they don't just have no problems anymore. Under that umbrella of drugs, there's lying, you know, being a cheat, being a thief, all those things that come with addiction. And I was still all those things minus the drugs. So Mm. honestly, it was up to the direction of my team there. And thank God for them. They guided me to stay there. They guided me to not escape after six days or 15 days like I had planned. And they helped me get through some really pivotal moments for my life, for to help me be successful. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about coming out of that first detox situation, being drug free, but in no way healthy, yeah. because because of all the other behavior that was still part of your life. So, when you were out of treatment the first time, how soon thereafter did you relapse? So I went after with their guidance. I went to Florida. Um, I got connected down to a recovery house and recovery program for PHP and IOP down in Florida with the retreats program down there. It was excellent. The whole time I was there, I was there. I stayed sober. Um, I was there for three months. Unfortunately, I got cocky and I decided I was better. And so I moved home thinking all was good. I could deal with the world. Boy, was I wrong. Um, About a month later, I started smoking marijuana again. Soon I was back at Benzo's, but abusing them um, like heck. How quickly did that happen? I mean, once you start smoking, I'm okay, I can have a little marijuana. How quickly did you do so? Probably two or three weeks later, I was looking for Benzo's or anything. Uh, So uh, between that first time and, uh, and today, how many times have you been in and out of treatment? So after that day, or, you know, after, not that day, after that treatment, in the same year I went to treatment, uh, four more times. So five treatments in one year. It was very scary for my parents and very frustrating. I can't even begin to explain that for them. And then one more that next year. And then the last time I relapsed, I got clean myself. Mm-hmm. Well, during the period of time when you're, when you're relapsing, what, you, your parents who started off with tough love, yeah. and that, which didn't get them very far, now seem very supportive. What were they going through? They were still pretty tough on me. Um, they were going through, when I first got clean, I would come home and my mom would just bawl her eyes out to happiness, to anger. She was going through those stages. My dad, he was trying to connect with me to, you know, figure me out at the core, you know, what is going on here? How can I help her? How can I be supportive? And so by that fifth treatment, they took away my car, they took away my cell phone, they made me live at a recovery house, and they set down the boundaries. And I'm very proud of them for doing so. Yeah, so um, they they moved away from the enabling portion of parenting. Absolutely. And tried to become. What about your brothers? Were they helpful? 
my brothers really kind of took a step back. My one brother, uh, Chris, he visited me in Florida. It was amazing. Um, it was kind of weird. Um, I was sober and, and he got drunk that night. Um, so, you know, and telling me stories about it the next day it was definitely a weird kind of parallel universe feeling. Then my stepbrother, he really just um, has a lot of resentment towards me. I'll say it like that. He just got married in June and I wasn't invited, but I am more than supportive of him and his now wife. They're amazing people just in pain and hurt from what I, my actions and what I've done. I, I feel that I, I think it was harsh what happened the way he did it, but mm -hmm. it wasn't undeserved. Yeah. Stephanie, uh, this, this, uh, situation with relapse lots of people both in and out of the the problem think that it's it's not an inevitable part of recovery it's certainly not to be uh, unexpected uh, how, how did you feel when you were when you would relapse did you feel like a failure or did you pick yourself right up and get back on the on the on the path what, what was going through your mind when you would slip well i'll tell you this each rehab planted a seed in me that led me to where I'm at today. So at first, yes, I felt like a failure, but I really just felt that I could not get rid of this obsession to use. Every time I was clean, I counted down the days till I would think of a plan to use again. Um, so basically, yeah, I did feel like a failure, but then I had a therapist tell me something different. She said, relapse is a part of recovery for most people, and it does not mean failure as we look at it. It is a failure if somebody relapses, if they continue to use after that for however long, a long period of time, you know, weeks, months, years, and they might die, they get worse. But what is success is when somebody uses, and hopefully they survive, but the next day they get right back into a program and they get right back to what they were doing. That is success because they are learning from what they are doing. Yeah, I've changed the way I look at it too. I, I'm like most people, I saw relapse as um, an indictment of uh, maybe treatment, certainly a, a, weakness, yeah. a weakness in the in the person. And now I look at it more, having spoken to so many people in your situation, as uh, not unlike being in a, a life or death race. And there's there's a finish line. That finish line is to stop this behavior and when you fall down in that effort you you get, get up and try to finish the race you got to get to that sober thing so i'm really less uh uh you know i really feel a little more positive about understanding uh, relapse do you remember the moment when you and i and we'll get into this in the final segment the, the moment when it starts to when the whole thing starts to make sense for you and you really start working the programs i do um so Around this last time, I moved to Atlanta for recovery. I um, went. I had a sexual assault happen from a taxi cab driver, and my counselor told me to leave the state, get out of here. He knew where I lived. He knew where I worked. He knew where my family lived. He knew a lot about me, and it was very scary. So I moved to Atlanta, and I went to treatment down there. And for the first time, I was serious, and the obsession kind of started to lift and I was happy and for I think this was due to lots of learning about myself and me but moreover having connection to my higher power and with AA really led me there Welcome back to Recovery Radio Steve Martirano with you I hope you're finding us here on Saturdays talking about the disease of addiction and the uh, paths to recovery Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, of course, the sponsors of the program. Stephanie Sukas has been with us. She's telling us uh, her story with the substance abuse. Um, 
up and down, in and out of uh, uh, treatment for a bunch of years, and now going on one year sober in a very short period of time. We congratulate you for that, uh, Stephanie. Let, let's talk about this this year now, when uh, you see, you seem obviously having more success than you've ever had in staying sober. What's it been like for you, and what what was different about this time than than those other times? Well, I'll tell you um, to begin. This last time I, I relapsed on heroin again, um, I spent about six months out doing drugs, and it really led to a quick, 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 like, downfall, like downward fall, and just straight on my head, I just ripped it apart everything. And, and in the end, I ended up at a doctor who kind of made things clear to me. He, um, I was throwing up blood every day, four to five times a day, even more. I had puke bags all over my house. I was puking while driving outside my car in my lap, and it was straight red blood. And I'm concerned. So I go to the doctor, and he says, are you doing drugs? I said, nope. He said, okay, well, I'm going to drug test you, and I'm going to take a blood test. I go pee for the drug test. He gets the results. He comes back in. So you're not doing drugs. No, doctor, I'm not. Well, I see here, see here, you popped hot for nine different drugs. And I'll tell you this as well. You smell like urine and feces. You're shaking. You have minor tooth decay. You haven't had your period in six months, you say. And when's the last time you even had a bowel movement? Well, let's talk about that. And he said, if this was like cancer, you're at stage four and you're 25 and you're going to die. And he said, I'll give you maybe three weeks to a month and you'll be dead. And that was the moment when things really just made that sense. That got your attention. It did. What's interesting, I mean, the whole story is, of course, fascinating. But the idea, and this is and this is indicative of what the disease does to your brains, in this condition, was he exaggerating about your conditions, first of all? No. No, okay. And nevertheless, you felt you could go in and convince this physician that there was nothing wrong with you, except you got a little blood that you're spitting out. Yeah, I was really just naive at that point. Well, the the, the disease the is drugs really amazing. Took yeah, you actually thought you could convince this doctor there's nothing wrong with you, or were you just kidding yourself? I was in major denial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were almost looking for somebody to go. You're 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 nuts. Maybe I think it was a point where I was crying for help because at that point, every night I would cry myself to sleep, even using. I mean, I was in a lot of pain, and I even tear up thinking about. How terrible that point was in my life. That's the point that you decide that's enough. It's over a year ago. You have been clean since then. Uh, what is sobriety like for you? Is it, I mean, this, sincerely, is it harder to stay sober than it was to stay high? It is, but it has been a journey. And I'll tell you that. Like I said before, when you get rid of the drugs, you don't become a perfect person. So it was, it was definitely a journey. When I first got clean, I went to PHP and... I flipped out on two of my therapists and nearly got kicked out. I crashed my car with uh, somebody else in it. I mean, I had problems, and I did, but what was better is I dealt with them without getting high. And I, I, that meant I found a solution. You know, a solution to my problems, which was listening, going to AA a lot at first, you know, praying, uh, just things that I found for myself. And everybody has to find something that makes them feel whole again. And whatever that is, I swear, whether it's a hobby or, you know, a belief, you got to find it. Yeah. Th- those things you just described are what are generally thought of in the uh, AA world as th- this higher power, correct? Yeah. 
What's your family doing during this period of time? Are they supported? Did they back off? Where are they? Well, they were in a little bit of shock. For the whole six months I was using, I basically kept it a secret. My Mm -hmm. addiction had become so sophisticated that I could smoke heroin off a tinfoil for 23 hours a day. And most people in my life, actually everybody, even my best friend at the time, Alex, had no idea. Yeah. So now on this year of of sobriety, do you feel cravings at all? I don't. Um, as when I used to before in my earlier, you know, recoveries, I would say more or less sobriety terms. Um, but anyway, I at times I do think about it. I do feel it. But naturally, I would. I'm an addict. It would be more natural for me to do so than for me not to mm-hmm, have feelings mm-hmm, about it. Mm-hmm. And it's all about reaction in everything in life. And I found that working out has been a huge tool for me when i have a rough day when i have these thoughts i go to the gym and i just do some cardio no headphones and i just think and i think for an hour however long i'm on there just hard and it releases so much and that's something really important to find outlets so uh, let me ask you as you sit here now young woman uh you look look as healthy as you could possibly be you've been sober for a year what do you want I mean, beyond the obvious sobriety for its own sake, what, what do you want? What do you want? To, what do you want to see happen to you? And thank you. Um, I, I think more or less one of the biggest things I wanted was when I shook somebody's hand to not have to say, "Hi, I'm Stephanie, and this is my life, and all it is is addiction and recovery." I would like my biggest or largest dream is to have a full life. And I had a therapist say it to me like this. It's not about clean urine and a cup for a drug test. It's about a happy and fulfilled life, whatever that looks like for you. And so I've been fighting to find that and fighting to say, hi, I'm Stephanie, and I have a full life of these things I do now. I'm a teacher's assistant. I go to school for psychology now. I have hobbies. I work out. Um, I sing. So these are things that I found that make me feel whole. Well, you know, you know what? I haven't heard anybody put it quite like that, but you're absolutely right. It's one thing to be um, drug-free, substance-free, and another thing to be a whole functioning human being. And we congratulate you on that effort. We, we, thank we, you we so hope, much. We hope it continues for you, and we thank you so very much for sharing that, that story with us. Stephanie Sukas, our guest here on Recovery Radio. That's it for us this week. Please look for us every Saturday, uh, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.